0: it is really great to be here and um you know we have the pastors have offices here and we're here every day or most days and even the church services that you've been watching online you know we're sitting down there spaced apart and everything but uh hearing the singing and singing along together and worshiping together is is an incredible gift and i think one thing that it's done for me is reminded me of those that aren 't able to do this, and maybe it 's for health reasons, maybe it 's where they live in the world, maybe they 're the only believer they don 't know any other believers, or maybe there 's two or three and that 's a gift that they can meet together. But this is an incredible gift that we can do this, and uh, we rejoice in our God uh, let's let 's pray and then we 'll dig into isaiah sixty four heavenly Father we recognize your goodness we recognize your your bounty we acknowledge that at times we took for granted meeting on sundays on wednesdays for men's breakfasts, for hey on friday night the teens are going to get together Um, lord it is a gift from you that we can meet and we know that throughout history often christians were not able to meet in a very public way maybe they would somewhat furtively meet together. Maybe other times they would meet together and know that persecution may come. Lord, you have given us abundant gifts and we acknowledge your abundance and we are thankful in your name. Amen. Most of us love hearing how God saves people. I think one of my joys as a Christian is hearing someone say, hey, uh, um, here is how I came to Christ. Here is what God was doing in my heart. And um, probably for many of you, I've asked you that question. Many of you have been part of this church for a long time, so you know other people's backstories, but I don't always. And so I will ask people, hey, w- w- how, how did God work in your heart? What, what did God do? How did God bring you to himself? And so this past Christmas, I was interested, I was reading the story of what's kind of commonly known as the Korean Pentecost, uh, it would be in 1907, and it was the story of how kind of Christianity boomed in Korea. When at that time it did not boom in Japan, when at that time it did not boom in China, Vietnam, and, and other places. What, what was going on there? And uh, as, I, as I did some reading, again, this was around Christmas time. So if you look at um, Christianity in Korea in the year 1900. You've got handfuls of really tiny house churches. We're talking four people, six people, eight people. We're talking about persecution from the government unless they were ignorant of what was going on. The uh, Boxer Rebellion had just been happening in China where some foreign powers, England primarily, but some others as well, kind of were pushy with China and China pushed back, killed thousands, thousands of missionaries. Thousands of foreigners were killed in China. And so then you're going to, to a country, if you're a missionary, you're going to a country in Korea, very heavily influenced by China. Uh, Japan was doing terrible things to Korea then, and increasingly so. And why would you want this, what you might, they might think, some might think of this European Christianity? And so if you read what some missionaries have shared about that time, they've got... They're, they're reaching out to these tiny, tiny churches. You don't want to publicly even say that you're a Christian. It's, it's such, a, such a diametrically opposed um, following God versus all the different religions and, and conglomeration of religions. Christianity was really, really weird to the culture in Korea. But for years, ar- around Christmas... Um, they would have groups. They would invite Christians in somewhat furtively and they would, they would meet and they would do Bible study. These these uh, missionaries would do Bible studies. And it would be usually about two weeks. So in 1907, on night 12 of 13, the gathered group of believers had a sense of God's nearness impossible to describe. And people began confessing sin to each other. There was a lot of emotion. They were weeping. They were praying. So much so that it really concerned the mostly Presbyterian missionaries, and they were saying, is this okay? Is, is this what's supposed to be happening? There's a lot of emotion here. People are really getting revved up, and this is outside of what we are used to. But as they thought, and these missionaries prayed, they said, hey, we've been praying for the work of the Holy Spirit. And the stuff that is happening here is really God-honoring and consistent with Scripture. So there's this huge outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Christians went back to their villages and were changed people. And from potentially a few hundred believers, might have been a few thousand, but from a few hundred or few thousand believers in 1907, over the next 70 years, 2.5 million people came to Christ in Korea. And much of that was under some really uh, difficult times, if you know your history at all, with then eventually North and South Korea. 1,300 churches were planted ...in that time frame. And we, I hope we hear that and we say, that is amazing, that is incredible. Look at, look at how the hand of God worked. Look at what he did. What a staggering picture of revival and then subsequent evangelism. And if we want to define revival, we could call it a return, a recall, or a recovery to life... ...from death or apparent death. So Paul going to the Apostle Paul going to an unreached people group would not technically be revival... But what happened in in Korea was revival in that you had a small group of believers. Some of them were not following God very accurately. Some of them were not following God very consistently. And there's a fair amount of reading that you could do on on the topic. But through the work of the Holy Spirit, prayer and Bible study, the Holy Spirit moved and refined in a great way, bringing repentance, inward and outward change, and then evangelism exploded. So what do you think, where you're sitting right there, what do you think when you hear the term revival? You might be listening, you might be thinking, I've, I've been to one of those in a church and they, you know, squeezed and manipulated me to pound my way down the aisle and to kneel in the front and it felt awkward or it felt, I felt manipulated. Or maybe you might say, well, I, I've, I've been maybe to a, a, a football stadium and I've heard a revival of say, Billy Graham, or maybe I've been to Promise Keepers or something like that, and they heard, heard a, a call to, to repentance, a call to faith, and maybe you or maybe those you know came to faith in that, say, wow, this revival was a, was a, really, was a really great thing. Uh, maybe you hear the, the term revival and you think, well, that's for Pentecostals or for Holy Spirit people, but I, I, I want to remind us, we're all in on the Holy Spirit, all in, all in, all in. Do you hear the the term revival and you think, well, it's too late for the United States. We've gone too far downhill. Or you might think people are too sophisticated today. Or you might think I'm too sophisticated today. I don't need any part of that. So Isaiah 64 is a passage on revival. God's people are in a tough place. Assyria has come down. Kind of think Asia Minor, Turkey, they've come down and they have conquered Israel at that time, the Northern Ten Tribes. Um, Things are rough. They've brought a bunch of people down that they imported. They took a bunch of Israelites out that they deported. Uh, Accurate biblical public worship has ground to a halt. There's this syncretistic, incorrect worship that's happening at Bethel and Dan, but it's, it's not what it should be. Things were not what they once were. But the people of God desire divine intervention. So they are saying, God, I need you to come down. I, I need you now. I, I don't, I'm not saying, hey, just stay over there because you're, you're too much or stay over there because we got this. They say, God, I need you now. So the people of God desired divine intervention. Secondly, the people of God acknowledge their unworthiness to receive divine blessing. They don't say, come on, God, you've, you've blessed us in the past. You, you better, you owe it to me or I need, you, you must they're saying, I don't deserve this. I recognize my sin and I am unworthy to receive divine blessing. And then thirdly, we're going to look at that the people of God beg for divine favor. Please, God, come down. Favor me now. Favor us corporately now. We need you, almighty God. So first of all, the people of God desire divine intervention. It says in Isaiah 64, starting with verse one, we'll just read the first half of that. It says, It says, Talking to God, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Will you, will you break open the heavens like a curtain and will you come down and will you work as only you can? And I think as we read this, we recognize, hey, there was, you know, the idea of, of gods, small g gods, was, was all over the, the, every civilization historically. Uh, I think we would be hard-pressed to find any type of civilization anywhere that didn't have some type of gods that they served. We could go back to Ur, we could go back to Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, gods, 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 and gods. You fast forward a little bit, you even go into ancient Europe, uh, Asia, um, you could go to North America, South America, um, and there are gods and gods and gods of various stripes. And you might say, well, hey, in the last hundred years, you know, the idea of gods has gone downhill. But if you even look um, uh, at uh, Russia when they had no gods, what were the gods there? It's probably the the motherland kind of idea. Uh, If you look at Germany, the Third Reich, it'd be the idea of the fatherland would be the god. If you look at a lot of America, a lot of our world even now, what are the gods? Oh, we don't have gods today. Oh, we do. Typically in America, it's you, are the God and you worship yourself, where increasingly so it's your political party that is the answer or the fixer or the make things right for yourself. So the idea of a God is not new to our world, but we have some visuals of God's power here that are different. Um, Each of these is kind of a little picture of it and it's kind of each has tremendous power that the... um, the object on the receiving end can't say no to, okay? You know, when you're working with, with a little baby, you know, they can't say no if you say, hey, we're going we're gonna to go to grandma's house and you put him in their car seat. They're not saying no. They might scream the whole way there, but they're coming because you, you got them. And that's a little bit with these objects here. And really, um, kind of halfway through verse one and then then through the end of verse three is a poem um, but if we just look at the first part of that, it, it has these things. Will you, will you run the heavens and come down, God? And then it has this idea of, hey, will, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Can a mountain stop an earthquake? Can a mountain say, no, I don't want to have any part of this earthquake? No, it cannot. And then it has another, as when fire kindles brushwood. If you've ever started a fire out in the woods, that got out of control, or even part of a larger burn, which... I'm a big fan of. Uh, you know, I mean, that's, when it starts going, it is going. And there is no way some dried brush can say, no, nah, I'm out, I don't really want to have any part of that. No, flames are shooting 30 feet in the air. I mean, it is going. Those sticks and brambles can do nothing when the fire is burning. And then uh, it's talking about boiling water. If you're, if you're boiling water, let's say over a campfire and it's turning the outside of the pot kind of black, the water in the pot can't say, nah, I, I kind of want to stay room temperature. I want to stay cold. No, it says, um, and the fire causes water to boil. He's saying, God, come down and work in a way that nobody can say no to you. Work as your power is with, with uh, work that can't be duplicated, can't be changed. And, and you might be asking right here, um, how, why, why this idea of if you would come down? You might say to yourself, where's the idea of God's omnipresence? You know, God is here and God is there. God is not limited by space or places. He's not up in heaven twiddling his thumbs. He is, he is, he is everywhere at once. How, how do we fit that with this verse? You might think of all, Psalm 139 where it says, you know, behold, if, if, I, if I go here, you're there. If I go here, you're there. You're over here. Supporting the idea of God's omnipresence. Well, think with me now, it's, it's not saying that, God, your words and acts are not enough, or they, or they haven't been enough. It's really acknowledging my sin has been great. He's acknowledging, as we see, we'll go through here, that we need forgiveness. And three, he's saying, hey, return with your mighty hand. But, but I want to remind everyone sitting in here and every, everybody watching online, we a lot of times don't feel that. This is accurate and true, what God does and his power. He's kindling brushwood and fire causing water to boil. He is, he is, his power is incomparable, but it doesn't mean that we always feel it. It doesn't mean that we always see it. And I think we all know that there's times in life where we think, I've prayed and I've asked God to work, and I haven't seen his good hand. This person that I love so much is still in great pain, this circumstance that is not working, this, this great difficulty that we have, God, why aren't you working? And I want to encourage us right now, and the writer of Isaiah as well, reminds us that God is powerful, and he is good, and he does work, but we often don't see it in our timing, and we often don't feel it when we want to feel it. So he says, God, intervene, do what only you can and then Isaiah says, hey, let me, let me look to the past a little bit. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. It says, I, I, want, I want to make your name, I guess at the end of verse 2, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. He's saying there is, there is no God like our God, and how has he worked? And he's worked in creation, and he worked at bringing Abram to himself and saying, hey, Abram, I'm going to move you 900 miles away, and I'm going to make you the father of a nation. And hey, I'm going I'm to work through the prophets, and I'm going to have the inscripturated word, and I'm going to send Jesus. And we can see God's acts over and over and over, even at those times we feel like he is distant. Job reminds us in Job 38, or God reminds us in Job 38, 32 through 37, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go out and say to you, here we are. Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the waterskins of heaven? And what does God do? It says God acts. No one has ever trusted God in vain. Ephesians three twenty and 21 talk about God being able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or think. And that's echoing this verse 4. That we just read. And what are we to do? Well we're to wait for him. And what does that waiting look like? It's resting in him. It's expectancy. And it's peace. And again those are things that we don't always feel. We need to preach the truth to ourselves, And I think most of us have been reminded. By our parents at one time. Or Sunday school teachers. Or pastors or different things. We preach the truth to ourselves. We don't just say this is how I feel right now. I'm overwhelmed. I'm just done. But we remind ourselves. This is what is true of God. This is what is true of his son, Jesus. This is true of what God thinks of me. I don't feel it maybe right now. I'm struggling right now, but this is true. And keep repeating it. This is what God promises in his word. This is who he is and this is what he does. So are we trusting that he acts, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's on this Memorial Day weekend, we're thinking of those we love or maybe some of our relatives when we are struggling with finding peace, do I desire divine intervention? Or am I talking about being a Christian and I really want God to be afar off in the way I really secretly think and act? And it's a challenge for all of us to think about. Do I desire divine intervention? Two, The people of God acknowledge their unworthiness to receive this divine blessing. And it starts us right off in verse 5 that God blesses the righteous. Tremendous half of verse says, You meet him, in verse 5, who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. It says meet. So God meets with him. What does that mean? It's not introducing or saying hello. This would be rather kind of a, a joining with idea. So God joins with those who are seeking his face. Joins with those who are seeking his intervention, and it says, "Remember, um, he remembers us." And again, that is not a, um, "Oh yes, we remember this," or "Oh yes, we remember that." It's really a, um, "I am, I am working on your behalf." And so, um, God remembered Rachel, and she had Joseph. And then later on, God remembered Rachel, and she had uh, Benjamin. Or God remembered the covenant. Or God remembered his promise. It's just, it's, it's saying, this remembering is God promising to work and to act. Bringing to mind and action. But then the second half of verse 5 says, hey, this, this righteousness, this remembering, this, this knowing, this meeting, that's not us. Isaiah says in the second half of verse 5, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and, and shall we be saved? And, and he kind of gives some, some pictures or some ideas of this. He says, we've all become like one who is unclean. So that's us saying, hey, we are like lepers in what we do and where we go and how we think. It's, this is kind of a, and here's how we can more accurately think of ourselves. So we have all become like one is unclean. I can be saying to myself, I'm a leper. And, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. On my best day, the best things that I do fall short of what God desires. Even my best things are sinful. It says, we all fade like a leaf. Even our strength is brittle, is fragile, is weak like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Our sin is dragging us around and dragging us around. And Isaiah wants us to accurately see ourselves. We can somewhat naturally think, you know, the the, you deserve it. Or um, I've been counseling someone and had them say, well, I've met with another counselor and they said, hey, uh, people change every seven years. You're basically a whole new person every seven years and so... My spouse, I'm changing as I should. I'm on my seven-year schedule. My spouse not changing with me, so I have kind of permission, mental permission to uh, to move on from this spouse and get get a get a fresh one. Or we might have the uh, you know you fill in the blank is your love language. So do fill in the blank because that's your love language. That's what you need to do. That's what that's what you resonates with you. What makes you feel good. Whatever. Might hear the if you love me, you tell me what I want to hear or you aren't truly my friend and i i have this this quote it's kind of a long quote from jonathan edwards from his gonna be a little 50 page book men are naturally god's enemies um, but it says this men or humankind we could say but men are ready to entertain a good esteem of those with whom they are friends they are apt to think highly of their qualities to give them their due praises and if there be defects to cover them But of those to whom they are enemies, they are disposed to have mean thoughts. They're apt to entertain a dishonorable opinion of them. They will be ready to look contemptibly upon anything that is praiseworthy in them. And here's the hard-hitting part. So it is with natural men towards God. They entertain very low and contemptible thoughts of God. Whatever honor and respect they may pretend and make a show of towards God, if their practice be examined, it will show that they certainly look upon him as a being That is but little to be regarded. The language of their hearts is, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? From Exodus 5. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? From Job 21. They cast such exceeding contempt on God as to prefer every vile lust before him. And every worldly enjoyment is set higher in their esteem than God. A morsel of meat or a few pence of worldly gain is preferred before him god is set last and lowest in the esteem of natural men and on our own without christ that's you and that's me but there's hope and the hope is pointed to even in the text here it uh It takes us to people acknowledging their unworthiness to receive divine blessing and pushes us then to the people of God plead for divine favor. And we recognize relationship, rule, mercy, and God's glory. Uh, We'll finish up verse 7. It says, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take a hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have made us melt and the hand of our iniquities. Almost like sin is holding us like a popsicle and it's just melting and dripping and dripping and dripping. But we recognize relationship. Now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. An appeal to their covenant relationship with God. He made us, He initiated. They have and we have fallen short. And there's, there's not a lot of um, God as our Father in the Old Testament. There's a ton in the New Testament. Jesus said it all the time. Uh, Paul said it often and others as well. Um, Romans eight fifteen and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So recognizing relationship, that's the first part of the people of God pleading for divine favor. We're not saying, hey, you're doing your thing and I'm doing my thing and, and maybe we'll interact. We're saying, you are God, you are my Father, and I'm crying out to you as Father. And I don't think there's a Father in this room that would say, if my kids ask for something that they legitimately need, that we would say, get out of here. And we are failed human fathers. Almighty God, perfect Heavenly Father gives us exactly what we need. So recognize relationship, recognize rule. We're again in verse 8. It says, we are the clay and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. And this is pretty counter-cultural thinking. This is not the kind of thinking that most Americans, most people in our world want to hear. We like to hear, I got this, or this is how it must be, or I'm a self-made man. We hear things or think things like, my spouse better treat me like the king or queen that I am, um, or my new boss better do things the way I'm used to, or I've saved my whole life for retirement, and so I cannot have cancer, uh, financial difficulties, crises, or problems with adult children. We all have a temptation to think that way at times. We can be thinking, hey, I'm 17 years old. This is what I deserve. My friends got this, and why do I not? or I know my friend can do this, and why do my parents not allow that? We all do it. From the youngest person in this room to the oldest person in this room, we must recognize God's rule. Romans 9 reminds us, again, using the wording from verse 8, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over a clay. And so we recognize relationship and we recognize rule and we say, God, you have the right and the power and the dominion. Rule over me and help me, Lord, by, by your grace to be clay that is moldable in your hand. Not clay that says, no, 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 I don't want to be a cup. I want to be a fancy vase or I want this and this and this. Clay's not talking to the potter, the potter is making the decision. So that's recognizing the rule. Recognizing mercy in verse 9. Isaiah says, Be not terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. This is really the heart of the gospel right here, but he's saying, hey God, this is how powerful you are, but don't be angry. Don't don't look at my sin. Don't look at my failure and, and my and my weakness, and my, my rebellion against you, we are crying out for mercy. And this is what, what we do when, when someone comes to Christ. We celebrated a baptism today. And Lane could be baptized because she's trusted Jesus Christ as her Savior. She cried out to him for mercy. We don't come to Christ and say, man, I'm really good. I'm really good at my job, or people really like me, or I've got some, some, some really good things that I do here. True salvation comes to those that say, I am broken, I am a sinner, I am needy, I cry out to you, I am dead in my sins and trespasses, but you have made me alive. Crying out to mercy, crying out and recognizing the cross. And whether you're in here and you're very, very young or very, very old, 11-year-old kid in this room right now can trust Christ as his or her Savior you can trust and know that your sin holds you guilty before Almighty God, but he sent his son Jesus to the cross that sinners like you can find forgiveness and new life and can cry out with Isaiah, show me mercy and he will give mercy. What a gift. And then after mercy, recognizing glory, even when times are tough. Starting in verse 10, it says, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a, a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. And all our present pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Well, I think it's really interesting here, a few things. He uses all these lovely terms. You know, we've got Holy cities, he's got Zion, Jerusalem, holy and beautiful house. It's like all these, all these beautiful terms, but it's broken. It's not right. And if you notice in verse 11, our, our holy and beautiful house, talking about the temple, if you look at chapter 6, 63, verse 15, it's probably just across the page for you, he really cries out in this section, really starts the section in his prayer for mercy, and he says, look down from your heaven and see, and the wording's almost identical, from your holy and beautiful habitation. So, God, from your holy and beautiful habitation, will you reach down to our holy and beautiful habitation, except it's not holy and beautiful anymore because it's desolate, it's been burned, it's been wiped out. And, and in Exodus 25, you said, hey, build me a sanctuary that I might have a, a place to, to be among you. And we know that's just the visible representation, we know that God is not limited by the tabernacle and then the temple. We know at times, you know, his, his Shekinah glory would would fill the tabernacle or fill the temple and be so much smoke that people couldn't even see each other. Um, But we know that God's not limited by a tiny little temple or a tiny little tabernacle. But they're saying, hey, we have a visible dwelling place of you here, and it's a wreck. And you are in your place up there. Will you not work? We recognize your glory and your strength and your ability in Korea in 1907 times were tough and they didn't know how tough they were going to be did they know all the stuff that China was going to do did they know the atrocities that Japan did to Korea I didn't know any of that was coming did they know there were actually more believers meeting in North Korea than than south at that time did they know that eventually they'd be under communist rule did they know that Huge amounts of those Christians fled persecution. Others martyred, and they went south, out of North Korea, once the two split. They didn't. But in 1907, when they first were having this Korean Pentecost, and they go back to their churches, and the missionaries were, were reaching in and trying to contact, and they didn't have the technology that we had, they didn't have the ability to travel like we have, but they had the Word of God, and they had the Holy Spirit working in hearts, and they had people saying, God, work in us however you're supposed to work, and we want to see your hand. Please intervene in only the way that you can intervene. Here's a few things that they did. It was really important to those missionaries that they had trained leadership, and they pushed doctrinal accuracy and unity. Now, that's a little bit different than was what is often pushed in cross-cultural missions today. Oftentimes, the lowest common denominator is what is pushed, or people emphasizing experience, emotions, promises for physical and material blessings, maybe asking for some extra signs, and those kind of things. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that more, actually, in a, in a future sermon, but just keep this in mind. We're looking Korea, 1907. What did they push? They wanted doctrinal accuracy and unity so that the bond and the interaction with God was accurate. I don't want to just have like, well, you have your God and I have my God. I call mine Jesus. But you, when you talk with your God, just start calling him Jesus and kind of adjust a couple of things and we'll call it good. It was, are you all in following Jesus Christ? So doctrinal accuracy and, and unity... Uh, Second thing was personal contrition. So we want to have corporate contrition. We want to be corporately um, saying, hey, together as a group, we want to be sorry for our sins and follow Christ. But personal contrition is me saying, when no one else is in here, God, I'm a sinner before you. And I want to keep a short sin account of how I am falling short of you. Not so I can earn my way in good with you, but because I don't want to sin against Almighty God and be okay with that. So personal contrition. Prayer, both personal prayer and corporate prayer. We can't say uh, we can't. We want to pray as a group, and we want to pray individually. And we don't just say, "Well, boy, we have a great Wednesday night prayer time," and I don't pray during the week repeatedly. It was both personal and corporate prayer, personal and corporate Bible study. Not saying, "Well, I guess I'll wait till Sunday to know God more," but saying, "In as much as we can get Scripture in our hands, and there's the same stories that we've often heard of having." Parts of the scriptures and divided up, and people are studying what they can. Those kind of things were happening. Um, the term personal work was really pushed, and that's caring for others. So not just I want to have a church that's caring, but I want to personally reach out to the single mom. I want to personally reach out to the person who's struggling financially. I want to personally make a phone call. This isn't somebody else's job. It's it's my job. Personal work, sacrificial giving. This is God's money and time and talents. And then missionary activity. I want to share the gospel with others. And I think as we look through that list, I think it's healthy for us to say, where, where am I on that? Where am I with each of those? And I think for everybody in this room, we would say, maybe we have some real strengths in some areas. And we probably have some other areas where, you know what? We're falling short of what God desires. But I want to remind us that those missionaries in Korea didn't do this just so we could say, well, we have a really nice religion and people seem to like it. That's not what they were looking for. They wanted the nations to be glad. Really, if you want to just page back, probably just be a little bit to Isaiah 62, um, verse 1. It's probably just a page over from where you're at right now. This This is what the leadership in Korea wants. This is what the leadership at Heritage wants. This is what every believer in here should want. He says this, this is Isaiah. He says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness. So He's talking to God. The nations shall see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. So not just here, not just in Israel, they wanted the nations to see God's glory, the kings to see God's glory. And that's what we want as well. And then just go down just a little bit in verse um, chapter 62, the end of verse 6. It says this, um, you who put the Lord in remembrance. So those of you that pray, that, that think about God, that follow God. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. So, so you're going to be crying out to God, crying out to God, crying out to God. Take no rest, give him no rest, until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. We can say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want God's name to be great in the earth. I want it to be great in Owensboro. We want God's name to be great in Kentucky and all over the United States and all over the world. And it's not just saying we're going to throw some money to some, some people in other nations or other places. But we have a vested interest. We are praying. We are seeking God's face. We are, we are not taking rest and we're giving, giving him no rest. We want the nations to be glad. Corporately and personally as well. So 113 years have passed since the Korean revival began. Um, those who are enjoy what's going on in the world know that uh, in no way am I saying that life is perfect in Korea now, neither North Korea or South, different problems in each, but in just from 1907, when the Holy Spirit started working in really specific ways to 1919, the Korean Christians went from from being just a a small percentage of the population to being uh, adherents of Christ were 5% of the population in Korea. That's an exploding percentage. Um, 13 of the 33 signers of the Korean Declaration of Independence from Japan were Christians, and uh, most, I think, of those were martyred. But that'd be almost 40% of kind of their Declaration of Independence were Christians. Many were martyred as they spoke against Japanese emperor worship. After World War II, North Korean communists began huge waves of persecution. They drove hordes of people from North Korea to South Korea, and thousands more were killed and began living for all eternity with their good Heavenly Father. At the same time, back to our text. For the people of Isaiah's day, Assyria maintained control for over a century. So from the time of the writing of this text, if we take a traditional writing of the text, which I do, um, Assyria controlled them for a hundred years. Things did not improve. Um, Certainly individuals were following God. Certainly some prophets were speaking out and speaking truth. But by and large, most people did not repent and turn. Um, Judah, the southern two nations, uh, continue ignoring God, and then Babylon and eventually Persia controlled. But we can't lose sight of this, that one was coming, one who intervened, and it was Jesus. And Jesus says, "'Come, you who are weary.'" And heavy laden. And I will give you rest for your souls. And I hope and I desire that as a church. And as individuals. We will say you know. We don't necessarily need the screaming and shouting. And hollering and manipulating people down aisles. But we need almighty God to intervene. We need to acknowledge our unworthiness. And we need to beg for divine favor. And I hope that we do that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I do, and we do, ask you to intervene. You know, we're, we're, we're going through this COVID-19 thing that has been startling at the least to all of us and, and horrifying to many, and um, whether it's businesses or or life and death situations or just a, a, a jarbling of what we're used to in society and and you know we we want to represent you well and does loving our neighbor mean doing this or that and and there's uncertainty? And Lord as humans we like certainty. We we selfishly and sometimes sinfully want certainty on things that, that can't satisfy we want certainty in our bank accounts. We want certainty in our family. We want certainty in our relationships. We want certainty in, in how our church looks. But we are shortchanging almighty God if we don't recognize even in, in the stuff that's going on here. That we don't look back. We need to look back, Lord, and say, hey, here ha- is how God has worked in what would historically be horrific times for God's people. We're to, we're to look for God's divine intervention and trust in him. And as we look to the future, people can be fearful and say, well, what happens with retirement money? What happens with my business? And those, Lord, those are, those are legitimate things. What happens with our health? What happens with my, my loved one's health? What happens, what happens, what happens? Lord, give us wisdom as we make decisions, but help us to see our hope is in the Lord who gave himself for us. May we trust in you. May we give our burdens to you. Put them on your yoke and trust in you, Heavenly Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.